0: again, Marksman tribe, Matt Robertson here with another episode of Everyday Marksman Radio. This is episode number three, titled The Marksman's Path. Before I get going, a couple housekeeping items. If you're listening on iTunes, I surely would appreciate it if you went ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave me a review. All today's show notes can be found at everydaymarksman.co slash marksman. Once again, that's everydaymarksman.co slash marksman. In today's episode, we're going to cover a few topics all focused around the idea of why do I do what I do? Or more importantly, what is it that I'm trying to build? What is this community that we're trying to establish and what is the underlying goal? Now this podcast and the website in general is all about tactical skills for an adventurous life. So if you haven't gotten a hint on that one yet, we're going to talk a bit more about that adventurous life and those tactical skills. So to open things up, I'm going to read an excerpt for you. My last ten days with the Navy aboard a destroyer bring vividly to mind another trip on the high seas a year ago, on the night of June 5th, aboard the cruiser Tuscaloosa, when we started to move across the cold, dark water of the Channel. The task of destroying the German army looked tremendous. That army included some 347 divisions in all. 60-odd of them in France, waiting behind the much-vaunted West Wall. A large proportion of the remainder was lined up against the Russians. The Russians were over a thousand miles to the east, and there was little thought in those days of a junction between the two armies. The entire German army was between us and our allies, and even though every thought was focused on those Normandy beaches and the hell of fire our men would soon be facing. That's why we need some form of universal military training. That's why we need a national rifle association to promote small arms marksmanship, whether on the range or in the hunting field. I was never more convinced of the need of such skill, never more completely persuaded that it provides the essential something needed in addition to the American fighting man's heart and ability, a something which cannot be left to a few final hurried months. Space does not permit the recital here of untold instances where a hunter or a practiced target shooter, alone and single-handed, created havoc in the ranks of determined enemy counterattack. I have tried to report some of these instances to you. The great tragedy is that there were not more of them. There could have been more, multiple thousands more, if we had more hunters, more expert riflemen to call upon from the civilian ranks. Next time. If there ever has to be a next time, it must be different. America must have those riflemen, American fighting men generally, not just in individual instances, must have that edge that skill with shoulder weapons gives. I am convinced that we need, and will have it, that the shooters of America, with evangelistic fervor in the bonds of patriotism and good fellowship, will spread the gospel of shooting, fun, and shooting skill, for recreation, and for national defense. That quote comes from Bill Shadle after he returned from World War II after nearly two years in Europe as American Rifleman's war correspondent and CBS Radio News reporter. He submitted his personal Report to Rifleman article that appeared in the July 1945 issue of American Rifleman, and I'll go ahead and put a link to that article in the show notes. So as we get on today's episode, there's something that Bill Shadel said in his line that I want to make sure that I allude to. And that is the idea of universal military training. I had never heard of this concept until interviewing John Simpson a couple of weeks ago. It came about in the late 1940s and into the early 1950s. And the idea was that we would have a core of trained American citizens across the board so that in times of emergencies... They could be called upon and trained very quickly to defend the nation. Americans have long held a distrust of a large military. It's built into our founding. It's in our DNA that all citizens should be able and trained in the use of arms so that they may defend themselves in times of emergency or called upon to help the nation. Every time we've had a major war going from the Civil War into World War I, World War II, and then even on to Vietnam— there has always been a lag time where the conflict begins and we have relatively few capable soldiers. The most successful of the early ways are those who already knew how to shoot and how to fight. They were the veterans of prior wars. They were the hunters, the outdoorsmen, those who knew how to live and survive. One of the greatest snipers of all time is Carlos Hathcock, who is famous for saying he didn't learn to read the wind in sniper school. He learned it in competition. The push for universal military training began in 1947, shortly after the end of World War II, but before the Cold War really got going. Two of its biggest advocates was George C. Marshall, former general, now turned Secretary of State, and President Truman. It caused an uproar in Congress because nobody truly liked the idea of requiring every citizen to go through military training. Ultimately, the idea of universal military training faded in the 1950s in favor of relying on the air power provided by the newly formed U.S. Air Force and nuclear weapons. Furthermore, as the Cold War got going and the threat of nuclear war became a reality, nobody put a lot of stock in the capability of the everyday person to survive that kind of fight. But that gets me to today's topic, being an everyday marksman. Universal military training never stuck around, for better or worse, but that doesn't mean there's not some lessons that we can take away from that idea and that experience. In fact, we've been doing it for a long time. If you were ever a Boy Scout, you learned the history of the Boy Scouts. That's exactly what it was. If you go back to the 1908 edition of the Boy Scout Handbook by Robert Baden-Powell, you'll find that many of the skills were very military-related, right down to earning badges for shooting and surviving in the woods. But ultimately, what this comes down to is the difference between knowing and doing. The information age has made it too easy to air quote, know things. Think about it. You have the entirety of human knowledge and history at our fingertips all the time. In a way, people have gotten too comfortable with that idea that if they don't know something, they'll just quickly look it up. And that's all fine and dandy up until that moment where that's not available to you. And then you have to rely on what you can actually do. And to quote Albert Einstein, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Having so much access to information makes us fearful of taking action without knowledge. The reality is the most difficult situations we find ourselves in are often the ones where we don't know information, but we have to act. But here's the thing. Experience is the greatest teacher of all. It's not by reading about something that you're able to suddenly do it. It's by learning enough about that topic that you can go practice and experiment and get feedback. Think about how many times you wanted to make an important decision, but you wanted to wait till all the facts were in. Maybe it was something you wanted to buy for your house, a new TV, a computer, a new rifle. And you endlessly scour the internet looking for reviews and forum discussions until you get all that information together so you know that you have made the right decision. If I have learned anything over time, it's that more often than not, any of my final five choices would have worked just fine, especially at my skill level. In this regard, I'd like to talk about something called fear setting, which I learned from Tim Ferriss. The idea is that when you're afraid to make a decision because you don't have enough information, take a step back and think about it. Write down what is the absolute worst thing that could happen. More often than not, when you do this exercise, you're going to realize that whatever the imaginary consequence, the worst case scenario of this decision you're trying to make, it's usually not that bad. The first step towards the marksman's path is taking action. This is the impetus behind the marksman challenges which I've been running lately. The first month was all about just getting out with your rifle and trying to learn the fundamentals and practice them. This month, it's about rucking and fitness. You don't need special equipment. You need a backpack and some weight. Go ruck. We're trying to build a community of action takers, of those who will improvise in the moment and go out and do it. So what do we take action on? The direction I like to go is talking about tactical skills. What I'm talking about is developing self-reliance and capability to get yourself out of difficult situations when you need to. Sure, that may look like a defensive situation where you have to defend your home or your community. But it may also mean that you're in the woods and you need to build a fire or a shelter. It means that you might be out camping and you're out of food. And you need to be able to recognize what makes a good food source or how to catch or trap. Some of the skills I focus on with the website involve marksmanship, of course, because marksmanship teaches you good decision-making and discipline. It teaches you focus. It teaches you how to look at something and be aware of what's going on around you, your environment with the wind, the gravity, your own heart rate, your breathing. It teaches you to focus on these things and block out the world until you make that shot connect. It's almost like meditation. But I also focus on physical fitness. To be honest, physical fitness is the single most important factor in how long you're going to survive when things get hard. Doug McGuff in his book, Body by Science, pointed out that there is a direct correlation between your muscle mass and how long you survive with cancer or after a car accident. The stronger you are, the fitter you are, the longer you will survive. I once had a friend of mine in the military who worked in the special operations world tell me, hey Matt, two things to know. Ammo is time and fitness is life. By that, he meant that how much ammunition you had on you in a firefight dictated how long you could stay in that firefight. But physical fitness determined how long you were going to survive. Which gets me to mindset. You see, the will to win is also equally important as your physical abilities. As Keith Cunningham pointed out in his book, The Secrets of Mental Marksmanship, train the mind and the body will follow. Life is going to kick you in the teeth. It's not about if, it's about when and how often. And when that happens, you have to have the ability to bounce back, to know that you've got this. Mental resilience is a skill that people have forgotten how to do. In a way, society has gotten soft because when things get hard, we turn to somebody else to solve the problem. When things get really hard, there may be nobody else to turn to. You might be on your own or people are turning towards you. Having a mindset that says, you've got this, you're going to get through it, and you're going to bounce back, that's important. And we're forgetting how to do it. And then I'll take a minute to talk about survival skills. I'm not the kind of person to tell you that when you go out to the woods and go camping, you better build that fire with two rocks and a piece of steel or that you have to make a friction fire with two sticks. I'm going to take a lighter. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But the point, what I'm trying to get across, is that you should learn how to do those things so that if the day comes where your lighter fails or you lose it, you fell off the back of a boat or whatever, that you still know how to build a fire, and you've practiced it because that gives you confidence. That means you don't feel pressure to carry 10 copies of something and add all that weight to your pack, which you can't afford. And that gets me to the last point here. Build a network. Too many people in our community think that the way to go about this is to focus solely on themselves. But that's not going to work. Humans are inherently social animals. We are wired to build a tribe, to have people we rely on. In fact, isolation is as bad for us as smoking and obesity. So, what I'm telling you to do is to reach out and find others to join you on this marksman's path. This does a couple things for you. One, it keeps you accountable, which contributes to your mindset. If you set goals and you have other people who can hold you accountable to those goals, you're more likely to do them and then you reap the benefits of actually accomplishing them. Second, it expands the skill sets. You can't learn everything. You can try, but some people are naturally going to be better at different things. The larger and more close-knit your tribe becomes, the more you can rely on other people for those special skills. So here's some examples I want to leave you with. The first one, is a man named Rick Rescorla. You may have never heard his name before, which is a shame. Rick was born in 1939 in England, but migrated to the United States. He joined the army when he was young and fought in the Iadrang Valley. If you've ever seen the movie We Were Soldiers Once and Young, or read the book, Rick was there. When he later left the military, he became a private consultant, and began working for several companies doing security advising. In 1990, he was working at the World Trade Center, and being security-minded, he built a network around him. Over the course of his life, he developed a core of men he could rely upon—thinkers and soldiers and politicians and writers and law enforcement officials, second-class, politically incorrect, belligerent men, men who saw things as they actually were and not what they seemed to be. From these, he developed his own brain trust— an intelligence unit to Red Team, it was his own staff and group of counselors. Often he would ask questions, hypothetical scenarios, and he would collect that feedback from them and take action on it and make plans. One time, he brought a consultant to New York in 1990, had them do an analysis of the World Trade Center to look for any vulnerabilities. Ultimately, it produced a prediction of the 1993 bombing. He did the same exercise again from 1995 to 1996, and they predicted that there was a very high probability that someone would try to attack the World Trade Center from the air. Well, then Rick took that information and he made plans. He began drilling people at his company of how to evacuate the building quickly and efficiently. Everybody rolled their eyes. Nobody wanted to do it. It was a drag on their day, but they did it. He installed generators and lighting and made sure that the lights would stay on in the stairwells, so people could get out of the building. Then, on September 11th, 2001, the first plane hit the World Trade Center. Rick put his plan into action. He sounded the alarm, and he saved 2,700 people that day because he had a plan, and he took action. He had the skill set, the mindset to make a decision and make it happen. Now, not everybody got out that day, and Rick went back into that building to save the stragglers, and that's when the tower collapsed. Rick was a hero. Another example is from the 1800s. Billy Dixon was born in 1850, and he lived all over the U.S., growing up as a woodworker and a scout, but ultimately made his name as a buffalo hunter on the American frontier. Now, Billy was known as a crack-shot marksman among the buffalo hunters. By 1874, he found himself in the Panhandle of Texas, outside of a little trading post known as the Adobe Walls. On the morning of June 27, 1874, a force of about 700 fighters attacked the Adobe Walls trading post. Billy Dixon was one of 28 people who took refuge in the local saloon and defended themselves over the course of three days. What made Billy Dixon famous in this fight was he borrowed another Buffalo Hunter's fifty-ninety 90 rifle and made a shot from over a mile away, taking off one of the fighters from their horses. Later in his biography, Billy would say that that was a scratch shot and he didn't think he could complete that one again, but he still did it. Later that same year, in August of 1874, Billy found himself working for General Nelson Miles as a scout and a courier. In September, Billy's detachment of six couriers found themselves ambushed. They were attacked by a large band of fighters and then took refuge in a buffalo wallow, digging with their hands and their knives to make a pit that they could hide in. Once again, over the course of three days, they survived an extremely cold rainstorm and harsh nights and fighting. One soldier was killed, but every man who was there, who survived, was awarded the Medal of Honor. Billy eventually retired and lived just outside the original Adobe Walls trading post that he became famous at. In eighteen eighty seven he became the first postmaster. In eighteen ninety four, he married his wife, Olive King Dixon of Virginia, who for three years was the only woman living in that county. So what do I tell you these stories? These men are what I consider marksmen. They were men of action. They had a skill. They developed that skill. And they used it for the benefit of others. They had a network. Rick Rescoedla did not do this by himself. He built a cohort of advisors, of people he could trust from different backgrounds. And he made predictions and took action on those predictions and saved 2,700 people. Billy Dixon was a skilled outdoorsman and scout and a marksman. And he made that shot from one mile away using a buffalo rifle in 1874. Not many marksmen today could even attempt to make such a shot. And his heroic actions won him the Medal of Honor even though he was not in the military. So all of this reminds me of a quote from Helmut von Mulkey the Elder, a Prussian general in the late 1800s. In the last analysis... Luck comes only to the well-prepared. So my ask of you today is to be prepared. Look at your life and think about what can you take action on right now, even little things, and start that path towards being a marksman. Alright guys, that's gonna wrap this one up. So, first off, I want to say thank you for listening. If you haven't done it already, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Leave me a review or a rating. I really do appreciate it. All that feedback really does help. And please make sure you come by everydaymarksman.co and subscribe. Join our little posse of merry marksmen as we take this journey towards being men of action. At the end of the day, we are all in this together. I am not an expert in anything I'm talking about. I am just on this journey trying to be a better man, a better husband, a better father, and a better member of my community. So until next time, I just want to leave you guys with one thought. The nation that will insist on drawing broad lines of demarcation between the fighting man and the thinking man is liable to find its fighting done by fools and its thinking done by cowards with Sir William Francis Butler give it a thought guys talk to you later